defeating the evil one. So the Lord's Prayer is a catechism and every line is filled with beautiful scriptural narrative of who Jesus is. Is Dr. Derwin Gray, the author of the new book, God, Do You Hear Me? Uh, some of you might remember Dr. Derwin Gray was on the podcast not too long ago. Uh, he had a book about um, having and leading a multi-ethnic church, uh, the church that he is the founding pastor of Transformation Church in the Charlotte area is a church just like that. And uh, so now he has this new book out, which uh, we're going to get into talking about the Lord's Prayer. And that is something I always want to talk about because the Lord's Prayer, it is probably one of the central pillars of my own personal like spiritual practices. I think it's the like the best place to start your prayer life. It's right there because Jesus told us to. And following up on the conversation that we had last week, and by conversation, I mean me talking by myself in the rant on deconstruction, like the heart of like what I was trying to say is for us as people who try to embrace the teachings of Jesus, we can debate over like what the Bible is. We can debate over how to best describe who God is. But if you don't have at the core a connection to who God is, then it, it all falls apart. If your faith is just like these ideas you have about God and it's not your own personal connection to this living being, which God has revealed to us in the person of Jesus that scripture tells us about, then it, it all falls apart. And in the end, it just becomes ideas that you have instead of a way of life that you live. And so um, as we try to help you like navigate faith in the modern world on the podcast, we, we're going back to... You have to live in connection to God. Part of what was so formative for me in my deconstruction was learning to see the presence of God that's all around me, no matter where I was, no matter if I had everything figured out, no matter if I understood things the way they were supposed to be, or no matter if I had to process life that wasn't the way I thought it was supposed to be. It's coming alive to the presence of God around you and having a vibrant prayer life and having these practices that constantly like connect you back to who God is. It's just like foundational. It's like one-on-one. Like we all have to have that. And so this Lord's Prayer is one of my favorites. Uh, it's actually one of the things that uh, I do on a consistent basis with my daughters. Uh, not because maybe they fully get it right now, but I want them to understand the Lord's Prayer. And then as they grow in their faith, in their connection to God, in their prayer life, that eventually they can expand on the Lord's Prayer and let it be like this song that invites you like as a musician to riff on it. So you, you start with like our father who are in heaven and maybe you just stop at the word hour and all of a sudden you're going, wait a minute, there's these people that like they don't see things the same way as me and they bother me and they don't do something right. And they don't treat me right. But all of a sudden I remember there's an hour at the very beginning of this prayer. And so it's not me just praying to my own God. It's all of us together. And all of a sudden you realize and assimilate back to the Christian story that says, you aren't doing this on your own, but we're all connected together. And then you keep praying and you go, oh, give me this day, my daily bread. And you remember that it's not your hard work. It's not your grit. It's not your, your effort that provides for you. But instead, God is the one who provides for you. And everything you have is not from your own sweat, and from the hard work that you've done, but it's a gift that God has given you. And all of a sudden you become far more generous because you realize your work is not because you have your hands clenched around things to make it happen, but instead you live in this hands wide open posture in which you're receiving. And so this prayer like has all these different layers and places you can go to. And so I absolutely love the Lord's Prayer. And so anytime I get a conversation about the Lord's Prayer, I am all in on that. And so uh, I, I would encourage you, like a, a lot of you gave me some feedback on the deconstruction. A lot of you are still going through that or you're about to or you have. I encourage you, you got to find practices that help you connect to God. Because if it just regresses into just ideas, like it, it, it's not going to work. You, you got to be connected to who God is. And so uh, the, like this conversation about the Lord's Prayer, hopefully it can give you some ideas and ways that you too can use this as a resource, be one of the things that you use to connect yourself to who God is. Anyway, uh, that was this little mini rant there. That was free, free of charge. So without further ado, let's get to our guy. All right, Dr. friends, welcome Derwin back to the show. Today Gray. we have returning to the show, Dr. Derwin Gray. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing well. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Last week, you had to reschedule, or you were willing to reschedule. I had a little uh, illness going on, and you were very kind, so I appreciate your uh, courtesy, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll do, do, do it well this time. Man, well, I'm just, I'm just glad you're all right, because it's, it's rough out in these streets. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. It's, it's real tough. It's so bad that uh, my voice sounded a whole lot deeper, and uh, so I was preaching, and uh, I had one of my elder's wives say, hey, your voice sounds deeper. It actually sounds sexy today. And, uh, like it's, life is hard after you have an elder's wife tell you your voice sounds sexy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I don't know how much publicly I would share that, that, that story there. (laughs) Well, I feel like you you need to confess. Like you, maybe, maybe like your voice sounded mature, robust, you know, James Earl Jones, like, you know, um, so I got Morgan Freeman. I got that. I got Morgan Freeman, which very generous, very generous. But I feel like if. (laughs) If I just bring it out into the light, then we're less likely to have negative re- repercussions from that. Story. You know what? I, you know what's in the darkness. That's right. So, yeah, we're 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 trying to bring it out there. Now, there's something else that uh, you have a book that came out. God, do you hear me? It's a book about prayer. Um, but we've got to start at the start of the book. Um, we got some things that we we need to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you start off right away uh, saying you don't like to swim. Correct. W- was it was it like or like? can like what, what is the the right word for that so define what you mean by swim like as in olympic style or as in if i fall in i'm gonna save myself style i i feel like the first test is like will you drown if you fall out a boat 100 yards away from the shore no now okay. if the current is strong then i got a problem because you know when you yeah. get out there in the lake if the current's strong doesn't matter how good you can actually swim but uh i'm gonna bet on myself that if i went in uh i'm coming out alive however i do not look for opportunities to swim i do not find it as a necessity for my being Mm -hmm. and uh you know as a kid growing up i played more sports like football basketball uh swimming not so much not so much was it yeah wasn't in your repertoire. Now, uh, you are a uh, family man. Uh, love your family. Your family likes to beach. You got a daughter who's like went to college right next to the coast. So, yep. I mean, you find yourself there on occasion because I you do. love your family. That's right. Which That's is right. a great sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. And so typically what it looks like for the grays at the beach is I am in a very comfortable chair uh, mm-hmm. with an umbrella over my head and a towel over me. And uh, my son and my wife and my daughter, they, they enjoy the sun. Uh, my kids are, are bi-ethnic, and so they have a nice cocoa tan. Um, okay. I don't have to work on my tan. Like, like I was born with my tan. Now, my wife, she got to work on her tan a little bit. So uh, my Caucasian brothers and sisters will be on the beach cooking themselves like rotisserie chicken while I am enjoying okay. myself Amen. under my white towel and... Big old umbrella. Okay. So you're there. And one of the things that you said in the book that um, we're going to have to talk about is that you you have a fear that a tiger shark will see you Mm -hmm. and think that you are a wonderful meal. Yeah. And uh, my last book, I had a friend named Annie who wrote the foreword. And the first sentence that Annie wrote in the foreword for my book is, Luke loves sharks. Mm. And so we've got like a difference of opinion when it comes to sharks. So. Here's here's what I'd like to ask you. If you ever found yourself in Hawaii, and like Oahu is probably the place I'd recommend, mm-hmm. there there's a great organization that does uh, pelagic shark dives, which means they just like throw you out in the water and like sharks will swim around you with like no, no cage or anything. Mm. What do you think we would need to do to arrange for you to overcome and face your fear of sharks in that setting? Uh, I would say it would have to take Doctor Strange teleporting me through a portal to another dimension okay besides that it's not gonna happen okay so we just need to get dr strange involved Uh and uh then we can make that happen yep if he can put me through another dimension through a teleport a portal thing then i'm down but other than that um, I don't see how going down with sharks would add to my life. What I will say, though, this is this is what I know. This is a fact, Luke. This is scientific, bro. Okay. I like, is, I like facts. It is dark meat is very flavorful and juicy. Okay. I am dark and I am meaty. Thus, I'm flavorful and juicy. So if a mm-hmm. tiger shark saw me and saw you, it would naturally say, 
Wow, that right there is a Ruth Chris ribeye, mm-hmm. juicy, and he would come for me and not you. I mean, and sharks. I would sharks know these things, bro. Hmm. Okay, so I would be the equivalent of like a dry piece of chicken, and you would be the ribeye. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So kind of okay. like growing up where I grew up at, right? You know, African American community. You would be kind of like the Caucasian friends that comes. And when the food is laid out and then there's chicken and everything, people would Mm -hmm. pick up yours and like, oh, bless his heart. Let's put some seasoning on it. Let's put some hot sauce on it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's still good. It's just different. Yeah, I I feel like kind of my my job in like the cookout is like to bring like the napkins or the plates or the cutlery. Like, I feel like that is what I or like ice. I feel like that's probably my role in that setting. Uh huh. Yes. Now you would do great. Yeah. Yeah. So um, (laughs) as as we've discussed, like I'm a white person. And so I live in Austin, Texas, which means I have a paddleboard. I go paddleboarding. Uh And I was paddleboarding this summer. And there was a gentleman whose skin looks closer to yours than mine. Mm -hmm. And he was he was struggling Mm -hmm. like he was like not doing like he couldn't stand up. He was Mm -hmm. about to fall off and he fell off and then panic was all over his face. This is a part of the lake where it's not that deep. And he's in the water and like I see. And so I start going over there and like he's trying to keep his head above water. And his line to me is, I don't mean to be the stereotype, but I can't swim. Mm hmm. And, but I was there on the paddleboard, so mm-hmm. I might not be able to be there for the cookout, like helping out, but if there's a paddleboarding incident. You're there. And yeah, I exactly. would, I would look for you. And so, um, you know, I'm from San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I experienced Slitterbond probably before you were born. What, what, what year were you born? Uh, 1981. Oh no, you're not that young. So you were okay. That I didn't. So, you didn't need to say it that way. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you could have said that differently. So um, you. Uh, <laughs> so I went to Slitterbond in like '88, right? And okay, so yeah. you were seven. So Slitterbond, it's like okay. a big deal now. So I'm from San Antonio. You're from Austin, but I will leave the paddleboard into you, and you just yeah. let me fish from a boat or for a bank, and together. Ebony and Ivory, we we, yeah. we make beautiful harmony together. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, I'm 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 fully supporting that, and the fact that you thought I was, you know, circa thirty years old instead of forty. So, uh, you know, I'll take that. Thank you. Hey, we're take gonna, it, take it, bro. Yeah. No, I'm going to give you some great questions because of that. Um, yeah. Okay. So I feel like we figured out this water shark fishing mm-hmm. thing. I feel like we've come to a resolution where we're both behind, and uh, I think we can move forward with this. Yes. Um, let me talk about a story that was pretty heartbreaking, and uh, for us Texas fans. Uh, University of Texas fans, the story seems very analogous to a time in which Colt McCoy was leading our beloved Longhorns against Alabama mm-hmm. in a national championship game. And I believe it was a defensive tackle who hit him on the elbow mm-hmm. and ended the national championship game for him prematurely. Mm-hmm. You tell a story about your son. Uh, I think he's a safety. Is that right? Defensive back? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's a defensive back. He's a senior. He leads his team to state championship game. And then he has a catastrophic, uh, was it an ankle injury? So he uh, tore ligaments in his ankle and broke the lower part of his leg in eight different places. That I mean, that's p- pretty catastrophic. And again, this is the state championship game. Mm-hmm. And he's he's not able to play the rest of the game. Um and you could even call it on the field, like the game stops mm-hmm. and dad gets brought on the field and mm-hmm. he says something to you that was deeply moving to me. And he's <laughs> a, a young man who's probably 18 years old at the time. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And w- yeah. could you replay the conversation? Because you'll tell it better than me. Yeah. You, you know, Luke, I, I appreciate that, you know, uh, I can tell that you like read the book and really dove into it. And and this is this is one of those stories that if it really didn't happen you probably wouldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my son at this time was one of the top high school football players in the country, recruited, uh, playing on a phenomenal team. He's a great player. And the game is going according to schedule. And uh, he makes a tackle and everybody gets up from the pile, but he doesn't. And immediately I could tell that he's hurt bad. Mm-hmm. Trainers come out and I see him grabbing the pant leg of the trainer. I'm like, I know he's hurt bad because that's what I did when I was hurt really bad. So the coach signals over for me to come down. I jump out of the stands. His mom stays in her seat and I run to the field and, you know, 
I get to him and uh, I immediately put my left hand on his chest, my right hand on his head, and I stroke his head. And he has a tear running down his cheek. And I say, son, I am so proud of you. I love you. You literally gave it all so your team could win. The medical staff helps him off the field and the game resumes because that's the way it is. Like you're hurt the next man up. So we're in this jam-packed stadium. There's cowbells. There's people blaring horns, yelling, but it's absolutely quiet. And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and he has like this big, huge smile on his face. And then he says, God is so good. I said, what would you say, son? He goes, Dad, God is so good. And I said, why did you say, say that? He goes, well. I could have got hurt in the first game. Um, I could have got hurt earlier. I, I could have got hurt really, really bad. And I'm looking at his ankle, which is like three times the size that it normally is. And in that moment, my 18-year-old son is talking about the goodness of God, not because he made the biggest play in the game, not because he got an interception or scored a touchdown. He's saying that God is good. Because he's grateful that this didn't happen earlier, but it's more than just the circumstance. He found God to be good in and of himself because of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so we have this moment that my heart was breaking for him, but yet he's celebrating the goodness of God, and that impacted me deeply. And so when I wrote, God, do you hear me? When we talk about our father in heaven, our father is good, independent of circumstances. A good day or a bad day doesn't determine the goodness of God. And I am on a mission and I'm on a quest. And so I'm going to say this rather strongly. So much of our prayer is not actually praying. It's actually manipulation. God, how can I manipulate you to do what I want you to do for me? And where at the end of the day, prayer is about having God himself. Because when we have God himself, who's revealed as God the Father through his son Jesus, the Holy Spirit allows us to understand that the goodness of God is never on trial. The love of God is never on trial. But in our trials, when we tap into him for him, his goodness and his grace even turns a bad day good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, the, the book is on the Sermon on the Mount, which is, uh, excuse me, the, the Lord's Prayer, which obviously is in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And that's uh, one of my favorite prayers. And I, we're going to get into it pretty deep in just a second. But as a parent, I want to go back to that story. Mm-hmm. And um, when he says, God is so good. Obviously, you're you're heartbroken for his injury, but in some ways, like you're beaming inside because that's like that's what you want from your yeah. kid. In the same way, like this is the Colt McCoy story. Like Colt has this beautiful testimony afterwards, and you know his parents, Deborah and Brad, were like so proud of him in that moment and greatest defeat, like celebrating mm-hmm. God the same way your son did. I, I know there's not like one simple thing you did that caused that to happen, mm-hmm. but like as a parent, like what do you what would you coach other parents to do so that like when your kid gets to that moment and obviously there's not like just a math equation yeah. formula that makes this happen, but like what are some of the things like practices that parents can do to, so that your kids can experience the goodness of God even in moments like that? Yeah. Um, what I would say, number one is that moment was the fruit of thousands of other moments and it begins with prayer. And it's like, how do we pray for our kids? Oftentimes we pray prayers like, Lord, may they have peace today instead of God in an unpeaceful world. May they draw on your peace. God, may they not have trials today. No, Lord, may in the midst of their trials, may you give them the grace to overcome. And and so Mm -hmm. we have to get on offense as parents because this is not yet the new heavens and new earth. Therefore, there's going to be trials and tribulation and brokenness and heartache because the new heavens and new earth isn't here yet. So it's not an absence of those things. It's the power of God and the presence of those things. And so number one is it's God's work. And so we have to point our children to him, not force it down their throat. The greatest catechism for our children is a life well lived embodying the gospel. 
Hmm. A lot of times, evangelical parents we we export we export the teaching of our children to school to the youth pastors instead of how we engage in conflict. The devotionals we have before we eat. Do our kids only notice us pray before dinner, or is prayer the rhythm of our life? And then, secondly, letting them know that uh, God is the one who causes the increase, not us. So, mm-hmm. you, so you either have parents who try to micromanage and shove it down their throats, which runs them away, or you have parents who don't embody the gospel, which runs them the way. And, and so, it's embodying the gospel, praying the gospel. And one of the biggest things that I've seen that has helped my kids, and they're not perfect at all, is when they blow it the most, they don't need me yelling. They don't need me angry. What they need is a hug. What they need to know is that God is a God of forgiveness and grace. Yes, there's consequences to the actions. But when you give it to God in repentance, those consequences become new reactions to move us towards obedience and transformation. Yeah. Hmm. That's good. I like the idea of being on the offense and mm-hmm. letting them see. I, I think someone much smarter than me said that much of parenting is caught, not taught. Mm-hmm. Like they they see you pray. That was uh, that was Siren Kierkegaard, the existential Christian philosopher, and you know so much so much of it is caught than taught. You know, and yeah. and and this is this is really really so important, right? is when you look at the Lord's prayer, it's an offensive prayer. Mm -hmm. So think about it. It opens with our Father. So the first part of the book, I'm talking about the attributes of our dad. It's hard to pray to someone you don't trust or you don't know their story. Number two, it moves into not only is God holy and different and beautiful, but then your kingdom come to earth as it is in Heaven. Then it moves to our needs, daily bread, and then it moves to forgiveness and the power to forgive. And then finally, it moves to defeating the evil one. So the Lord's Prayer is a catechism, and every line is filled with beautiful scriptural narrative of who Jesus is. And so we're looking for all these ways to pray. And Jesus literally said in Matthew 6, 9, when you pray, pray like this. And the way the word pray is written in the Greek language, it is a command. It's not an option. It is a command. And so therefore, the Lord's prayer, you can pray it for verbatim or you can use it as a framework to pray. But Father means, for example, when we pray our Father, we're praying to Elroy, the God who sees. We're praying to Elohim, the God most high. We're praying to Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. We're praying to the great I am, Yahweh, who's a self-existent, eternal, mighty one. We're praying to El Shaddai. So like a lot of our prayers are so anemic because we're so busy trying to use God instead of worship God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, that's spot on. And I, I love the way someone once said that the entirety of the gospel is encapsulated in the Lord's prayer. Like every bit of the, the gospel is there. It's a proclamation of who God is, the kingdom, what that means for us. But like you said, it starts with our Father. And you know, I can imagine your kids are going to naturally connect to that language in a way that that is super easy for them because they've seen loving parents modeled for them. One of the things that you say in the book is that it, it was difficult for you um, be, to, and I think your experience is analogous to many people, where the father figure wasn't as present in your life growing up. And you mentioned that in the book. And I've had um, other people in the podcast who talked about how because of their problematic relationship with their earthly father, this sort of uh, masculine parental language is really off-putting to them because it's so contrary to their experience. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I hear you using is you use masculine pronouns for God. You talk about God as our father. H- how did you balance that? Because I know some people decided, let's just get rid of this sort of like gender pronouns for God. But instead, you went the other direction. <laughs> well, you know, if if Jesus uses the Aramaic word Abba to describe God, then who am I to change that? I, You know, I checked Jesus's Twitter bio. It's pretty, it's pretty strong. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally going to follow his lead. Um, so 
I think, number one, we have to understand this isn't purely intellectual. We are in a spiritual war, right? And the dark world, the demonic powers have schemes against us. A stronghold is a thought or view of life that entangles you and influences your life. And there's demonic powers behind that. I remember years ago, this was early in ministry. I was preaching at a place and I talked about God as father. And I got a scathing uh, letter from someone who said, never call God father. And then they went into how they were abused by their father. And number one, when I wrote them back, I was very empathetic. And I'm sorry you went through the abuse. But then I paused and said, your trauma cannot be the dominant narrative of your life, that it changes the name of God. Like, you want to change the name of God because of your trauma? That's narcissistic. How about letting God change the narrative around your trauma, that your trauma no longer has the power to dictate you Because the father says, my son has experienced your pain and what was sent to break you will now make you for God all works, all things together for the good of those who love him and caught according to his purpose. Right. And and, and so I think we live in a time now where. Let's talk more about our trauma than the triumph of Christ. Mm -hmm. And, And listen, I get it. My dad lived several blocks away from me. He suffered from addiction. Um, he was never around. I get, get it totally. I get it as good as anybody get, 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 gets it. Um, but I want the father's view of me and the father of who he is revealed in Jesus to be my story. I don't, I don't want abandonment to be my story. I want adoption in Christ to be my story. I don't want trauma to be my story. I want triumph in Christ to be my story. I don't want victim to be my story. I want victorious in Christ to be my story. And that's what the Lord's prayer, the Lord's prayer is a posture of advancing forward. Mm-hmm. And, and you say that as someone who, in your book, you talk about not just the uh, the absence of your father, but also the, the abuse that you experienced mm-hmm. in your life. So you're not just saying this as someone who hasn't experienced trauma like that. No. But you're saying as someone who's, who's experienced it. And uh, elsewhere in the book, you talk about prayer is rehearsing God's story. Yeah. And as I hear you talking about, like, w- what is the dominant narrative for your life? Mm-hmm. Is it like the trauma you've experienced or is it what God has done in the person of Jesus? Um, when we think of prayer, often it's like this, like, Santa Claus lap sort of thing. Like, Hey, I want this. Give me this. Give me this. How do we uh, flip that into seeing it more as rehearsing the story of what God has done? Yeah. So, and he's doing, yeah. So that's literally why I wrote the book is because I felt that people were frustrated with prayer and God is going, I'd be frustrated too. Cause what you're doing is not praying. What you're, what you're doing is you think I'm a Venmo. And if you put in the right account, I'll transfer blessings. Mm-hmm. And, and so Think about and listen to how people pray, and it immediately goes to, I need this, I want this, I have to have this, do do this, versus when we look at the story of God, right, the Lord's Prayer, Father, we have a Father who wants His children. Because He's holy and different, He looks at our rebellion and He still comes to us to invite us into his family, his kingdom. And in his family and in his kingdom, there's the bread of life who provides for us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And at the meantime, we are receiving and living in forgiveness to give it away. And now we have power to push back the darkness because the sun has overcome the evil one. So what I just did is gave you a worldview. But Luke... To be honest, though, here's the problem. That's not what American Christians want. What do we want? What we want is basically like, uh, give me a little prayer that's going to promise me I'm going to get prosperity. And and even the e- the evangelical megachurch, and by the way, our church is massive, so I'm not against megachurch, but I'm talking culturally. Yep. Even in the suburban cultural milieu, it's, it's very much prayers that are consumeristic. 
They're not participatory. And what I mean by, by, by that is so much of it is give me, give me, I need, I need, give me, give me, I need, I need. And yes, God does provide. But here's a question, though. Sandwiching the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 8, says this. God knows everything you need. Then Matthew 6, 32 says, don't be like the Gentiles who just asked for all this stuff. God already knows what you need. Verse 33 of Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he'll provide all of your needs. So here's the question. If the father invites you into his family, he's not inviting you in to consume. He's inviting you into union. He's inviting you into participation. So therefore, he's going to give you what you need for the mission. Hmm. You, you said into union. What, mm-hmm. what, is, what does union look like? What union looks like is this. The supernatural something happens the moment we say yes to Jesus, that there is uh, uh, this this great exchange takes place. Jesus exchanges his unrighteousness and his life. Or Jesus exchanges his righteousness and life for our unrighteousness and death. And eternally, we are now united to Jesus so much so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the body of Christ, that we literally are so united to Jesus that the Father looks at us and treats us as though we are Jesus. That's what's so amazing about grace is Jesus steps in our stead. So here's the story of God. Jesus loved the Father like no one else could. He was obedient. Jesus was holy. He had no sin. Jesus embodied the kingdom of God. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is forgiveness. Jesus defeated the works of the devil. So Luke, here's what I'm getting to. It's about Jesus. So Jesus done everything that we could not. He gave his life for us to give his life to us, to live his life through us. And when God looks at us, God sees him. Mm-hmm. And so when we pray this prayer, we are rehearsing that story, the narrative of what Jesus has done. Yes. And here's the, and here's the thing too, Luke, is all of us all the time are rehearsing a story. We're rehearsing the pain of our trauma. We're rehearsing our failures. We're rehearsing um, our needs and our wants. We're rehearsing all types of things. And Jesus is saying, I want to be the dominant story in your life. Hmm. Okay. Can you flush that out a little bit more? Like I get rehearsing like traumas has happened, uh, wants, needs, okay. like in what ways yeah. do, do we rehearse these? Okay. So I will give you an example. Okay. So let's say for, okay. So early in my marriage with my wife, if she communicated to me something that needed to change, I immediately took it as though she was talking against me as a person and I failed. Okay. So as I began to grow and understand in my union life in Christ, when we have these conversations now, I take a step back and I interpret what she's saying through the righteousness of Christ. So whether she's right or whether she's wrong, I can respond in love because my identity is no longer determined by if I'm right or wrong, it's determined by Christ. So if I get an email from someone saying, Pastor, why do you preach about race all the time? And I go, well, because the Bible does. And we're leaving the church. I don't have to take it personally anymore. Why? Because I'm reconciled to God. Therefore, how you treat me does not determine how I respond to you. So it takes very intentionality. And that's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Lord's Prayer helps us to renew our minds and to rehearse God's story and to live intentional about, okay, this is who God says I am. Therefore, I'm going to respond in a way that's consistent with who God declares me to be in Christ. Hmm. That's good. It takes intentionality. Listen, if you're not intentional, you're intentional. And a lot of us are intentionally not walking in the story of God. We're intentionally not walking in the spirit. What we're doing is we are walking in the script of the culture. And that's why when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Mm -hmm. 
The story. And what do we do? Like, yeah, yeah. And even the story that, even the scripture that Jesus quotes, like, "Man shall not live by bread, but out of every word that comes out of God's mouth." He's quoting from Deuteronomy when the children of Israel were in the wilderness as well. So even Jesus is quoting scripture, right? And so, listen, I get Netflix binging. I'm not saying don't watch Netflix, but one thing that I do know, we as Christians, the better we know scripture, the better we pray. Say that again for the people in the back. The better we know scripture, the better we pray. Hmm. Because scripture starts to come out of us and we have more the story that just naturally is in our heart, in our mind. Absolutely. And how about, about this? Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word out of God's mouth. So if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Huh. I mean, that's a pretty substantial argument that I can't argue with that one at all. Uh, <laughs> when... When uh, So we're, we're praying, we're rehearsing the story, mm-hmm. we are being conformed to the pattern, not of this world, but we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Mm-hmm. This is happening. W- one of the things that changes is even when we talk about justice, it's mm-hmm. different. And so you have a line in the book where you talk about justice without Jesus is vengeance. Mm-hmm. How does Jesus change vengeance into justice? Yeah, yeah. Y- you know, um, okay, so... Let me let me give by way of an illustration, and then we're going to go to the scripture. Okay. Uh, so when you look back at the civil rights movement, I think we forget that his name was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. So as a Christian, in order to be a part of the civil rights movement, these young, predominantly black people, and there were some whites as well, would have to read the Sermon on the Mount daily, as well as the Beatitudes daily, in order to practice nonviolence. So imagine going to a restaurant. Like, as a black man in the South, I can go to a restaurant and I can eat. Well, my mom remembers when that couldn't take place. I remember as an eight-year-old boy going to a restaurant and a drunk white man stood up and said, all you Mexicans and N-words, I remember a day when you couldn't eat with us good white folks. Like, this is in my lifetime. This isn't in black and white. This is in my lifetime. And so imagine in the 60s, you're 18, 19, 20, and you've got people, white people calling you the N-word, spitting on you, pouring hot coffee on, on you, and you don't retaliate because you've read, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Blessed are those uh, whom are persecuted for my name's sake. The civil rights movement for those who were Christians was one of the greatest displays of revival and discipleship the world has ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at justice, right, Dr. King and his movement was anti-violence. It wasn't burning buildings and doing things. However, Dr. King did say this as well. Riots is the cries that are unheard, right? So my point is this, justice or righteousness is what love looks like in public, as Carnell West says. Yeah. yeah, Okay. And so justice without Jesus is vengeance. What I mean by that is this, and I'll give examples from my church. Uh, Our church is very diverse, but we're also in sanctification. So I'll have some black people will say, hey, you know, man, we need to uh, we need to do this and we need to do this. And I said, brother, that sounds like vengeance towards your brothers and sisters in Christ who are of a different ethnicity. You know, so justice without Jesus is vengeance. It's anarchy. It's just tearing stuff up to tear stuff up. Jesus was about building bridges. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus wrecked shop in the temple because Mm -hmm. Gentiles were not being allowed to have access to God. But my point is, in today's culture, 
Um, and this is one of the reasons why I'm working so hard through our church and my books is I see a lot of secular understandings of justice masquerading in the church. And then on the conservative side, the only justice that's talked about is abortion. And so I think it needs to be both that we need to talk about life in the womb and preserving life in the womb, advocating for adoption, uh, health care, um, all types of those types of things, um, but also ethnic and social uh, uh, injustice is equally important. Let me ask you a question. Okay. How is it that a billionaire can be caught on film at a massage parlor getting illegal sexual services from Asian women, he gets his case thrown out, they get arrested and deported. How is it that pharmaceutical companies can create addictive opioids, only pay an $8 billion fine, and no one goes to jail, but if you're a poor white, brown, or black kid, and you have a hundred bucks worth of weed on you, you're going under the jail. Yeah. Um, how is it that with public schools, they're funded by the taxes in the neighborhoods? So nicer neighborhoods are going to have more money than poor neighborhoods. And we know that money influences access to certain things. Why is it with, say, Native Americans and black and brown people, the pandemic hit them harder? Access to health care. No, I, 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 if Jesus didn't care about health care, I don't think he would have healed anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the record, I don't want to answer any of those questions because I don't have a good answer uh, for those. So thank you for making me uh Get those questions, but yeah, it brings up the question of as people of faith and people who pray the Lord's Prayer, when it becomes on earth as is in heaven, there's justice and things are yep. made right, and God's justice is setting things righteously, or or at least trying to. So, just so I don't sound like a hypocrite, so what are we doing? Okay, so for the last eleven years, we've done this thing called Roll Out Hope, and so this year we are providing four thousand gifts for over five hundred kids in our community over the last 11 years we've made nearly 300,000 backpack meals for kids to eat over the weekend uh 2 years ago we paid off uh uh, uh 4 million dollars in medical debt for people in the state of South Carolina uh gosh uh i could keep oh and we have a free grocery store called the Hope Dealers Market where over 400 families per month get free groceries. And at the meantime, we see over 500 people per year come to faith in Jesus. So evangelism, discipleship, and justice are like the Holy Trinity. They don't have to be separated. So uh, I want to put my money where my mouth is. And so we're trying to do our little part while recognizing that it's not going to be all the way just until the King of Justice comes and makes all things right. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the angles that, that you, you mentioned in the book is that God is both for the oppressor and the oppressed. And typically the kind of understanding of, of uh, response is for one, not the other. And one of the unique things about the kingdom of God is that there is mercy both for the oppressed and also the oppressor. What do you think yeah. en- enables followers of Jesus to not have this binary view of I'm just for the oppressed or I'm just for the oppressor, but like I'm like concern for both. Yeah. And so I think here's what's important, right? So the book of Isaiah talks about the, uh, the oppressor, right? So uh, in today's language on the progressive left, if you're white, you're the oppressor. If you're non-white, you're the oppressed, but that's not what's being discussed here. At the end of the day, the great oppressor is dark demonic powers. And yes, there's systemic injustice, but not every individual person is a quote unquote oppressor. So mm-hmm. let's just let's just make sure that that we're really clear on that. I think a great example of God's grace being for the oppressed and the oppressor is when we look at uh, John Newton. John Newton wrote a song called Amazing Grace, and he was a slave trader. He met Jesus and he spent the rest of his life trying to abolish slavery. And he wrote Amazing Grace because as the oppressor. God gave him grace, and he influenced a young man by the name of William Wilberforce, 
who in England played a prominent role in outlawing slavery in England. So that's what I mean for the oppressed and the oppressor. So when you think of Joseph in the Bible, Joseph was greatly oppressed and sinned against by his brothers, but God gave him grace through all the hell that Joseph went through. And so a lot of times uh, what the enemy brings against us, Genesis fifty twenty, what you meant for evil, God turns into good. So, for example, um, as a as as a black man, even though I'm 23 percent European, that's another story for another time. Um, but 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 as as a black man growing up in America, I've had to learn the dominant story of the other. So now as a multi-ethnic church pastor, there are things that I have learned that have equipped me to be able to lead a diverse church. And a lot of majority culture pastors can't because they've never had to learn like I've had to learn. They've never gone through what I've gone through. And then you put that into the gospel. Um, God gives a unique wiring for that. And, and so what the enemy means for evil, God turns into good. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you encourage us to do is to uh, daily put our armor on. And part of the Lord's Prayer, like we have this, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory of earth, there is this, um, like it's, it's martial language. And what, what, what changes in us when the Lord's Prayer calls us to understand this sort of uh, power, or excuse me, this, this battle that we are in between the power and principalities of this age and the kingdom of God? Yeah, you know, I think what Paul does so beautifully through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he reminds the churches at Ephesus and us that our war is not against flesh and blood. Our war is not against people. It's against powers and principalities of darkness, mm-hmm. right? And so being angry and vindictive towards people is what the enemy wants us to do. That's why Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Oh my gosh, love your enemies? Love your enemies. And so we put on the full armor of God. That's how we walk in victory. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't experience the shrapnel of being in a broken world. It does mean this. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take courage for I have overcome the world. We have resurrection power Mm -hmm. and that we can walk in that power, that we can live peaceably. We can live love. We can embody his justice. Um, but it requires deep discipleship and prayer. Yep. And I don't think there's a better prayer than the Lord's Prayer. I think it uh, it points us in the right direction. It's uh, it's something that's central for my family. It's something for the past, I don't know, three months our church has been saying every week as we've been preaching through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so I absolutely love it. I love the book. Um, I have one question. I've read part of it. And it's like, I don't, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, you tell a story. You're a young man, uh, BYU. And uh, you're, I believe you're uh, in the weight room. Uh, there's a woman who uh, has some skills in the basketball court, uh, a, a javelin thrower on the track team. Uh, as a former pole vaulter myself, I got nothing but love for hey. track athletes. Um, and y- you walk in and she's doing tricep extensions. Yep. And in your heart of hearts, you're asking yourself, there's nothing better than for right now for her to ask me to spot her. She does. She, she does, does ask you. Here's my question, though. What do you really spot on a tricep extension? Are we talking like a cable pull down? Because that, like, how no, much no. spotting do you need? She was laying the skull crusher. Black. Yeah, and she was doing this. Okay, the old skull crusher. That's the what. old skull crusher. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That adds yeah, up. Yeah, okay. yeah. And and right. I was like, when I saw those triceps, I was like, we could create <laughs> some <laughs> super athletes, <laughs> and we did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, your your son's combine numbers. They're pretty impressive. So yeah, uh, yeah, I guess it worked out. Those those triceps were were accurate. So and my daughter uh, was an all American cheerleader as well. She was probably the best athlete in the family. Really? Okay, so mm-hmm. I've got uh, two go- two daughters who are in uh, competitive cheer. Let me. Uh, hey, hey, hey! Uh, on a on a serious note, uh-huh. be be careful with that competitive cheer because it's very uh, body. Uh, image stuff, uh, eating disorders. I mean, it's yeah. ruthless, man. It's ruthless. So really monitor your, your kids. Okay, so my daughters are flyers, which is the part of the team that is 
especially um, mm-hmm. they play pay, play a um, lot of attention to weight and all that kind of stuff. They're not like at my gym, they're not like weighing or anything like that. I was a wrestler. I don't want anyone dealing with cutting weight. Uh, I've done that myself mm-hmm. like that. Um, any suggestions on how to do that? Yeah. Number one, pray for them. And number two, mm-hmm. as they get social media, continue to follow it. Uh, number three, if you hear them saying things like, I'm so fat, I got to keep my weight down. Like, just be careful, man, because that was a struggle for us. It's not my story to tell. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to stop there. But um, it was rough. It, it, it If we had to do it all over again, we wouldn't. Really? Yeah. How? Like, at what level did she, she go to? She was on arguably the best team in the nation. They would win national championships. She was the point person in the front. And uh, yeah. it was it was brutal. The heart, the heart work wasn't the issue. It was the issue, body issues. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was so, you know, just offense is the best defense. Just be aware of that because a lot of the girls aren't going to come from homes where they recognize that I'm made in the image of God. My weight doesn't determine me. But, you know, flyers have to be small. And if yep. they're not genetically small, then that's something they got to work on. But at 10, 11, and 12, that's not something that you do. Yeah, no. I mean, my 13-year-old and my 10-year-old, that's that's their age. And they naturally, I mean, they've, they've always been single-digit percentile for their size and all that stuff. So it kind of comes easy at this point. But at some point, you outgrow that position. Yep. That's just life. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I appreciate that word. What do you do about practices? Because, like, they're going to... Like when I was a kid, like practice didn't happen on Wednesday night and Sunday night, like it wasn't there. <laughs> what do you do? What do you like? This is nothing to do with your book, but I just like to know. Yeah. Like, any 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 thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah. So uh, you have to determine for your kids, particularly when they get at the time when they can make decisions for themselves. So with our son, uh, when he was in about tenth grade, you know, he was starting to get serious about his faith and. Uh, we together as a family made a decision that he would not play sports on Sundays, but occasionally. Some of his friends would play all the time. Like, you know, their his parents, friends, parents, they, the, the kids, they'd be gone for months at a time. With my daughter, as she got older, we gave her the decision and choice based on where she was in her faith journey. So I would say monitor for your kids until they can make their own decision. But for a lot of parents, they think their kids are going to be the next Venus and Serena or Jordan. And they have their kids participating in travel basketball and all this stuff. And then when the kids get get to college and they long, no longer play sports, they're like, why doesn't my son or daughter want to go to church? And I'm like, well, you taught them it wasn't important. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you gotta, about, you gotta, you, you gotta navigate it, man. It's that balance, yeah. Because I don't is. want it to be like because of church, you can't do any sports. Like I don't, I don't want that to be like mm-hmm. first impressions. Like oh, church is against me having fun, uh, but you also want to prioritize it. You know, I, I think you know travel and competitive sports have done a great job of discipling our kids at church isn't that important. And mm-hmm. so yeah, I feel like there's some tension in the middle of it. But um, and what and what I would say is really help them see church is not a destination. It's a people and the people gather and then the people scatter. So from time to time, but when it, but when it becomes, I'm no longer gathering at all ever. Yeah. Then it's a problem. Yeah. No, that's spot on. That's spot on. Well, uh, the book, uh, God, do you hear me? Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, I highly recommend if you're just listening, start praying the Lord's Prayer. And then as you start to do that, like this is a great resource to coincide with that great uh, spiritual discipline that Jesus you know, kind of told you to do. So you should do it. But uh, Dr. Derwin Gray, thank you for the time. Appreciate you coming back on the show. Appreciate it, bro. Thank you.